Let's get into this. My mom used to be very emphatic about a particular school book that we would bring home from school that was Robbie and me. My brother was Robbie, I was Richie. I changed it when I got married. But the book that I resisted and actually detested was one whose title, if you've been a teacher, usually curriculum has titles to it. And this was the Think and Do book. And of course, I think you know where this is going. Mom, what do I do? Mom's answer was the title of the book, Think and Do. And I'd shrug my shoulders and I'd go, I don't know what that means. Well, Richard, Richie, <laughs> you need to think. And as you think, then you will be able to follow the directions that are given and what the teacher has said, and you will be able to do. Well, it didn't work. But it wasn't the book's fault, and it wasn't my mom's fault. It was the fact that I had a problem connecting, in a practical sense, what was required of me. I didn't want to do what was required of me. I didn't want to think about it. In fact, I would have been just as happy if an older brother had come along and just done the work for me, and I just stamped it with my seal of approval and you know, given my lunch money to him or something like that. So the think and do book, I needed a lot of correction on what it meant. I'm telling you though that the title incited in me resistance. It didn't find in my heart a reward at all. It was something I just did not want to do. So I thought about that. My grandmother used to say a pop popular phrase, an idiom, called mind your P's and Q's. Does anybody remember that? Do any of you back there remember that? <laughs> You're hesitant. I want to see if I identify with him, then I'm saying I'm really old. And if I just play ignorant, well, then I'm, you know, I'm innocent. So the P's and Q's were an idiom used very popularly by my grandmother's generation. It means... Be exact. It may have come from the days in which the printing press was by moving little metal pieces that had letters on them or phrases in them. And so the printer was to be checking and double checking that the P's and the Q's wouldn't be mistook. Now, I understand that in teaching handwriting because when I was teaching handwriting, it was very easy for a student, depending on what handwriting or printing you were teaching them, you know. Danillion, Zaner Blozer, those kinds of things, then they could alter the letter that was intended for one that wasn't intended by putting the stick on either the left side or the right side. You put it on the right side as you're looking at that little O, it becomes a Q. You put it on the left side, it's a P. But sometimes they would mix it up. It would change the entire value of the word. But the idiom also has come to mean, hey, let's show some really considerate manners. Mind your P's and Q's. So grandma always used it, not that I was having a writing problem, though I did. She was saying, Richie, mind your manners. Be really conscious of how you behave. 
so we understood what it meant. It didn't mean uh, alphabet soup, which was very rewarding. It didn't mean alphabet cereal, which was very sweet. It meant my manners that would sour in her thinking of me. So setting you up right now, we can see that in this particular Psalms, there is instruction that we, unlike them, might mind our P's and our Q's, that we get it right when we know that we very often fail pretty consistently. So it opens up, interestingly enough, with praise. So may I say to all of us, one of the means by which we change the attitude of failure is to acknowledge the God who is faithful and who never fails. A means to change the attitude or action of failure is to acknowledge in praise the God who has never failed, always faithful. The mistake we make is that we feel because of failure, we have no connection with God, failing to realize that Jesus had in his death, in his resurrection, in his demonstration of the Father's love, given us access 24-7. But what part in that 24-7 do we get confused? It doesn't mean that we have a limitation on God's mercy and forgiveness. We're the ones that limit our own access to him. So I like what the psalmist begins with, which is praising the Lord. It says in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And he is. In times like today, guess who gets the bad rap? God does. Why is he allowing this to happen? What in the world have we done to deserve this? How could this be? All of us have an incident or two or perspective on culture or politics in which rather than giving thanks to God because he is good, we look at the bad and we try to cite God for allowing it, for being the cause of it. There are hurricanes, there are fires, there's lawlessness. God's getting a bad rap. So the psalmist in opening up this passage, especially as it moves on beyond six, that come in fairly consistent indictments, we want to be able to be on the record and we want to say, though there is a mark against me, potentially, in what I think, what I've done, what I say, what I haven't been transparent with God about, he has not recorded that. I may be on the record for it. It certainly may be something that I'm marked as or potentially judged for. But God hasn't accounted that to us. And that's worthy of being able to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's good. You may say it's an interesting contrast, though, Rich, because on Sunday we were talking about the correction of God, which confirms his love for us. And the correction of God comes in different manners to each of us, according to the need, the necessity. And we can all cite the times in which 
we can say, oh, I've been corrected. And that may have been through an agency. It may have been through, um, obviously, our parents, which we focused on. We've all got them. But God, we need to remember, is not judging you in the correction. It's been judged. We're simply being put back on course. We're simply being turned around. And so, in one way, the recitation of the faithlessness of God's people by this psalmist is not camping on God's failure. It's saying, man, the camp of Israel and all the tribes, how could they forget that God is good? He declares it. So sometimes when it doesn't come out of our mouth, guess what? God will make a rock cry out and declare it. The, the very thing that we ought to have done will come from somebody else's mouth. And it's really God just interjecting for us, this is the way we do it. That's become a kind of a, <laughs> a phrase in different homes and places. It's kind of slang. This is the way we do it. <laughs> And I'm snickering because I've been using that phrase. Not arrogantly, but, you know, it's the way to get it done right. This is the way we do it. There's painting that's going on here in the church. There's a recording studio that the guys have been visionarily putting before me. And so I look in on it and say, this is the way we do it. And they go, can we do it this way? We can give it a try. That may not be the way we do it, but give it a shot. See what I think about it. So they're excited. There's stuff that's being done. We're painting the second and third grade room because there's a change that we want to see take place. And there's a way to do it. We're doing it. We had guys in there today that were doing it. And that's exciting because something's getting done. The Lord is good for his mercy endures forever. Why is that an important phrase? Because people think they've run dry the mercies of God. David, remember, would say in one of his more famous psalms was that there's a multitude of mercies that he could count on. And in fact, that was a part of the recitation in the two psalms that David was credited for saying when he'd been corrected by Nathan. Multitude of mercies. So remember... You're able to say that God is good because you didn't get what you could have gotten, a judgment, and maybe even a harsher correction than you did get. Have you ever breathed a sigh of relief when you didn't really get the full weight of a correction that you could have? That's mercy. That's mercy. God knows what needs to be applied, and he knows how to apply it very well. But there's always an incident that you can make a comparison with in terms of, wow. And you just breathe a sigh of relief. Wow, I was spared. Maybe not the rod, but maybe the next application of the rod. I remember there was as much relief in the fact that where the norm was at least five swats, I got four and a half. And I thought, that was, that's awesome. I just, I couldn't have taken that extra one because my parents knew intuitively what was sufficient. Some may need the 10. 
four and a half was good because it didn't make it all the way to five. And I remember to this day going, that's awesome. I only got four and a half. The mercies of God. What can, it says, or who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Question mark. Now there's reverence being shown in that that actually reflect if so mighty are his works, so frequently have they been demonstrated. It's like, oh, who's got the ability to give God credit for his awesome deeds? Ooh. And the idea there is, what if we miss one of them? What if we don't account rightly what in fact he's done? But there's awe in this statement. There is a holy fear, oh, to even utter the acts of God, his awesome deeds. Oh, if I should just miss one of them. Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice. And he who does righteousness at all times. The reward in keeping justice and the reward in doing righteousness at all times is summed up in the word, blessed. We're happier. Have you ever had a grumpy day that moves into another and then a week? And one of the things isn't this implication here, oh, I've got to keep it better. I've got to keep justice better. It's actually not that at all. What you do is you allow God to keep you in his fullness in everything that the Lord is to you, he is your keeper. So though this implies a work, it actually implies better for you and I, a resignation. I want the Lord to keep me in his grace. I want the Lord to keep me in the acknowledgement of his mercy. I want the Lord to keep my voice that I might sing to him and pray to him. I want the Lord to keep my bones in place, that in these things that are important to him, justice, remember that's reasonable and fair. It's not what tends to be implied by culture today, which is judgment. That's a different act of God. God seeks justice, that fairness and reasonability is applied to all. The reason that we don't see it is because we have become secular, not us, but our culture, and we're seeking to do things contrary to the way that God wants it done. So what do you do? Well, the psalm in this case is pointing us to the fact that we are hopeless if we do not put ourselves in remembrance of who God is, what he's done, and his faithfulness towards all who seek him, his open arms to everyone who has been, as you recall the story, the prodigal son or daughter running from the Lord, wanting it their way instead of Yahweh. And so God wants to remove that as a barrier. We all have to know that he's a God that has not only a willing heart, but he has a rewarding heart. He rewards his children. Oh, who can utter it? Man. But we need to. 
Again, it's showing reverence. It's showing reverence as we recount and recall. In verse 4, remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. This is good. See, there's another people that actually, in historical account, came before us. They were the people that God elected in his sovereignty that we know as the children of Israel. He started with one man who had no qualification to hear the voice of God, intimately beckoning him to step out of a secular and pagan culture. Secular in terms of what its focus was and pagan in terms of its religion. They did not honor the Lord God. And guess who got grace handed to him? That was Abraham. No qualification whatsoever. Except perhaps one that we also would say is our qualification. When we heard the voice of God, we said yes. When we were invited to the place of God, we said why not? And when the Lord stretched us in faith, opportunities to exercise in a manner of belief, we said, sure, I believe. I believed in a lot of things that haven't given me anything. In fact, it's robbed me of much of everything. But I do believe I'm willing to say that. I've exhausted all other endeavors of satisfaction. Lord, Remember me with the favor you have towards your people. So we need to remember Israel. Because sometimes we only want to remember the good old days of the USA. We should remember the good old days of the USA. We should be those who celebrate a work of God, working through godly men to put together a nation that under his sovereignty under trusting in him, exercising in the freedom of religion, and I might say specifically Christianity, pointedly, we are ones who receive that because of the oracles of God that flowed from God's people, Israel, into our hands. The word that I read tonight is from the nation of Israel to those men touched by God as songwriters of their day, endued by the Spirit of God. The very same Spirit that is within us was the inspiration and the facilitator of the words that we look at tonight. That's pretty awesome. There are things happening in Israel today. And even in the political scene, that deals with prophecy, we need to keep them in prayer. Not for maybe what it means on the very short side of what we believe is the eminent return of the Lord, not upon earth, but basically to take us from earth. We need to keep a perspective that God's in charge of them while he's given us a charge with the entirety of the oracles of God. Written by whom? These were Jewish authors. With exception of some pedigree, these were Jewish authors. And we have the entirety of God's truth to satisfy every question that we could ever ask, every need that we have, 
and to anchor ourselves in a sure hope that we are to be able to express faith in, that time is short. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. Don't ever believe in the false doctrine in which Israel is diminished and we've taken its place. And dominion theology, we got to get her done as a church before God can do anything else. Nope, that's a bologna sandwich. Don't mean to offend anybody that enjoy bologna. I can eat it too. But that's somewhat of a derogatory statement. It's not accurate. The Lord is doing a work through the church, but the, the church is not to be doing any work that it can boast in to conquer the world. There's enough conquerors out there, right? Enough causes that distract us. It's all there. Remember Israel. Pray for the peace of Israel. Ooh, I think my prayer worked. The Arab nations have just shaken hands with them and the USA. USA all the way. Israel, way to go, Joe. Not that Joe. Don't know why I used that one. G.I. Joe. That's not working either. <laughs> the point being made is that we're to remember fondly where God's eye is upon that nation and in which the clock of eternity ticks in terms of when time's up here, time begins there, and there's a pending judgment that will start in time. But a reign that will be on this earth for a thousand years and then eternity that will be timeless because that's in God's plan. And we can't even imagine what that is like. Most of us, like right about now, are going, mm, the bed sounds good and the cup of cocoa. Are they serving that tonight? Because, see, we're time-oriented. Many of you started your morning early, and this is getting on the late side of looking forward to resting your bones. There is a true rest coming, but it has nothing to do with you unresting your soul by the events that are right now calamitous and seemingly unsolvable. God has that all worked out. If you realize that he, being faithful to Israel, remarkably faithful. No other nation has ever been able to be separated to the four corners of the earth, gathered together as one since 1948, and have such, in my opinion, incredible protection by a very few, the U.S. being one of them. May we not turn from God's work in that nation because they're being drawn back to him. And you know what's making the difference? It's not forcing this down their throat. It's the love of God actually being shown through the church in what is called simply agape love. We're not asking for anything in return. We're returning the love of God to them through the practical agency of the church. We love them. And it doesn't make sense to them because all their life they've been barterers and they've had deals cut and deals broken. So when they all of a sudden are introduced to the one whom we represent, Messiah, who has come for them, 
they marvel. They may not confess him, not yet, but they marvel that such like you and I would be praying for them and loving in Jesus' name each one of them. Pretty incredible. Oh, visit me, the psalmist declares, with your salvation. Have you had a saving moment this week in which, as you evaluate it, hmm, I was in peril and the Lord saved me. I was in peril and the Lord saved me. If you take an inventory, I think you would marvel at how many deliverances God has given to each one of us tonight. Classic. One of the members of my family was skateboarding, came into the house, kind of laughing, which I was kind of amazed at, but also kind of hurting because that skateboard didn't exactly do the trick that it was summoned to do. Splat. So as a father, you know what I'm thinking. Did you have your football gear on? Helmet, knee pads, elbow pads, gloves, flypaper shoes. None of those things were evident. Just that laughter, and I believe it was this, a laughter of deliverance. God delivered me. That's the way I looked at it. But I also looked at even just my own life. Delivered. Delivered. Delivered from one meal to the next. Lord, what delivery. My goodness, a breakfast. My goodness, a lunch. My goodness, the scales. I'm battling something deep inside me. We'll get to that on the next teaching. They're called cravings. Do you remember a couple of teachings ago, about four Sundays ago, when I was using my illustration of going out early in the morning for an errand? It was a legitimate errand. I was asked by my wife to go take care of some stuff. I just found other things to do while I was taking care of the stuff, and that was to stuff my face with it. First, a Dairy Queen, extra bacon, extra ham, really whipped up egg, hot muffin, and that's, no, it was a biscuit, pardon me. I remember it all too well. But only then to get the stuff done, but then to realize I had to polish it off with a donut. That was my teaching. Do you know how many times I've heard that story? mentioned to me, either because you're guilty or because you want to shame me. Now look what you've done. <laughs> I've consented to the scale of just saying, I like that number. I've seen it get higher. I'm doing okay. Nothing on my beard, so what are you going to say? I'm battling that. But the Lord is good. He's faithful. He's merciful. Meal to meal. Bedtime to bedtime. Accident to accident. Near misses. He's good. He's faithful. This psalmist is declaring, Oh Lord, visit me with your salvation. I will tell you, he has visited us with Jesus. He has visited us and made habitation within us by his spirit. He has not left us to our own devices. Not at all. What a great word for us. And verse 5, 
that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones. Do you ever look at one another and marvel at the benefits that God is giving to his chosen ones? And the marvelous thing is when you all of a sudden put your eyes on one whom you wouldn't choose, but you realize that God has, and it causes you to drop your jaw and go, oh my goodness, God, infinite in his love, infinite in what he sees, that my bias does not permit. And it does stun you when you are able to hear in your heart what the Spirit says. That's one of my chosen ones. Rich. Richie. That's one of my chosen ones. Oh, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones. He's chosen us. And he's chosen the ones that you wouldn't choose. And we're to be ones that say, oh, that I might be able to indulge, not in my bias, but in your true devotional love towards those that I actually am challenged in loving. The chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. He brings us back again to what others may be shaking their heads on and holding their fists against. That I may glory with your inheritance. And so, in essence, that's not only you and I, but it is ultimately Israel, and it is ultimately those yet to be received. That's his inheritance. We look at inheritance kind of differently. We look at it from a capital side, the green that's going in the account. God looks at it as the people that are going into heaven and those whom we have not yet given him the full opportunity to touch and to change. But it does happen. Where does this all go since we only get down to verse 5? Well, verse 6 to the concluding of this is where the checks and the balances are weighed out. And it's what anybody objectively would be able to say, oh, I'm familiar with that theme. I agree with that thought, accurate in what it's saying. But this is the preparation for it. This is to say, if you take no note of this, and if you don't value this, you'll devalue yourself on the other. You must value this, what has been spoken, concerning God, in order to not devalue yourself or another concerning what is going to be shared. And that's the evidentiary failures, the mess-ups. That's your devotional word for tonight. Wanted to be able to compress this. We would be here a lot longer, and we probably could do very well. But when it's sufficient to be able to say, now that the narration is set, then take what it is that you've heard and pray thanksgiving and praise tonight to the Lord for all the things that he has done, is doing. Pray tonight, even as we leave, for the elections, which are right around the corner, what, some 40 days out? Am I right, wrong, right in there, something like that? And we have a nation that we, 
as, in my opinion, his inheritance, as all nations who bow to him, we are worthy through Jesus to be able to ask the Father to bless a stay of what? Consequence. Because of what? The backsliding of a nation. Remember, it's the backslider that gets con corrected by his backsliding. So we could say, as a nation, we're due. But we could also say, but Lord, in your word, you have said that there's mercy. And that's what I want to see. I want to give it one more shot. There are definitely people that as Christians we ought to be voting for on principle of basic faith and Christianity, period. No apologies there. You need to examine what their philosophy is about life and about the depravity of humanity. And if they lean towards the depravity of humanity, meaning that it's okay, let them do what they want. It's all right. It's just this. It's not as bad as it could be. You need to have an opportunity on paper to say, that's not God's heart. That's not God's will. This isn't about politics simply for people's sake. It's for God's sake. For God's sake, we need to be those who, by an examination of the Lord, not divided by politics, but by pleasing God, are able to say, this is what God would find pleasing based on the principles that I see in his word, positions that are taken concerning life. And ultimately, if it gives us another day, another month, another year or four, that there's opportunity for the best harvest to take place as opposed to waste away until something does take its place.